right. Hello, hello. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. We're glad you could join us at Rock Fellowship, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us online. We're grateful that you could choose uh, to worship with us and to rest and remember the presence and the character of God um, on this day. Um, today, uh, we've kind of been going through a series of like going out, coming out of summer. We had a few guest speakers. We had Cannon Beach. We had mission trips, spotlights. So a few different things have been happening. And um, again, if you've been regularly attending our church, you know that generally speaking, we like to use um, a series format for our preaching schedule where we have a topic or a passage or a book of the Bible that we'll go through for a few weeks, if not a few months. Um, but this is kind of the tail end of our kind of standalone messages, meaning that this is not part one or part two of anything else. This message is everything in and of itself. So if this is your first time visiting, it's the perfect time. You haven't missed anything. We just like to just catch you up with the speed on. Um, this is just uh, a message in and of itself. Um, this so I was preparing what to talk about. It's always harder. I feel like the luxury of having a series is that a lot of times Pastor Chris and I will go uh, kind of brainstorm topics together, and then we'll kind of like map it out. All right, so week two will be like this, week three, like the flow. And I feel like, I don't know how it is for Pastor Chris or any of our uh, lay leaders who speak, the hardest part of, of preaching a sermon is like, what, God, what do you want me to talk about? Like, I feel like once I have the... the the, the topic or the passage, right, then it's just a matter of just studying and research and planning it out. But I feel like getting to that first step is always like, what, what is a, a message that you want for the church, God? What is something that's relevant? What does someone in our church need to hear? God, what do you have to say to our church? And um, I was reading my Bible this past weekend. I was reading this passage that was fairly familiar, and I was reading it, and I read it again. I was like, oh, this is kind of a weird passage. I don't know how I feel about this. And before I knew what I was going to talk about, I felt that this was the passage that God wanted me to speak about today. And the more I read and studied this passage, the more I realized this is a fairly relatable predicament that this character finds themselves in. And I hope it's one uh, that can provide a sense of hope and comfort for anyone that may be going through a similar dilemma um, like this woman is today. But before we go into the word, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again uh, for the gift that you've given us of the Sabbath, Father. May we learn to uh, embrace and enjoy and truly um, enjoy the fruits of this gift that you've given us, Father. And during this time, um, as we go into your word, as we read from your scripture and as we listen, Father, I ask that you speak through me, Father. And may your will be done through the words that are said. May this message be yours and yours alone. May you move, may your spirit move through the hearts and the minds and the ears of the people in this room, Father. Lord, whoever this message is for, Father, may we have the courage and strength um, and the intentionality to hear and then to apply this message into their lives, Father. We thank you for this community and this space and the privilege we have to worship you today. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to look at 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And 1 Samuel kind of marks um, kind of a transition period in the story of the Old Testament. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're introduced to someone um, by the name of Elkanah. Elkanah is um, a man, he's a Levite, but he's actually really not the main character of this passage. The main character is more um, his wife who, despite being married to someone with a kind of very biblical, kind of crazy name like Elkanah, her name is Hannah. And Hannah is married to Elkanah. Um, and throughout the story, you learn a few things. But the first is that you, you cannot doubt the fact that Elkanah loves Hannah very, very much. And you see evidence of this throughout the story. Um, however, the problem with this couple very early on in their marriage is that they are unable to have children. And because they're unable to have children, and historically in those days, it was thought that it was generally um, the woman's fault. So they, as people did during those times, um, Elkanah got a second wife. 
And the problem began right around here. Well, it was bad enough that in this marriage, um, Hannah was unable to get pregnant. The kind of tension starts to form when Elkanah takes a second wife, Penina, and she is able to bear children. Actually, she bears several children um, to Elkanah, and this is kind of where the tension in the story uh, starts to take place, right? So fortunately for Elkanah, Elkanah's second wife is able to bear multiple children. Unfortunately for Hannah, her new, I guess, co-wife, Penina, was um, more than happy to rub it in her face that she was able to bear children, but Hannah was not. And then this starts this sort of family tension, and we get a small glimpse of kind of what the family dynamic might have been like with these three different tension points um, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, which we'll have on the screen. Um, and this is talking about the, the pretext of this is that um, Penina, the second wife, who was able to bear children, would kind of take it upon herself to remind Hannah, like, What's going on? Like, where are your kids? What are you doing? Kind of rubbed it in her face. Definitely not the most amicable relationship. This went on year after year. By this being like the bullying, the teasing, the kind of like rubbing it in her face. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the temple um, of the Lord, went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons. So for years, right, for years, this is the tension, right? This is the kind of dynamic in the story where it's, again, the Bible doesn't even describe um, the relationship between Penina and Hannah as like, I don't know if co-wife is the right word or whatever it is. It wasn't family, it was her rival, right? From right off the bat, the Bible establishes this is the context of the relationship. They're not friends, they're not like even family, it's like you versus me, right? And this, there's a lot of tension and competition here. And again, it's not really particularly friendly or clean. It's like fighting dirty, right? Provoking to the point of tears, like they're living together in this house, but there's a lot of friction going on in this place. And we also um, get... get um, a small glimpse of Elkanah's relationship with Hannah, right? Clearly, this is someone who he loves, who he cares for, but, you know, words of affirmation, consoling, maybe not his strongest suit, where his, his words of consolation is, hey, like, it sucks that you can't have kids, but you have me. Like, why are you so sad? At least you have me. And, and we don't actually hear her response, but I think that was her response. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Um, you're not very good at this. But we also know that um, you cannot deny that even though even though there was this point of tension in their marriage, um, Elkanah still cared for and loved Hannah. And we see that later on in the passage where it describes how every year they would go up to this place in Shiloh to worship the Lord. Um, they would offer sacrifices and worship. And afterwards, um, there would be this portion where he would distribute the meat of the sacrifice to people in their family. And he would give Penina a portion and each of her children a portion. But to Hannah, he would give a choice or a double portion of this meat. Again, to show the fact that, hey, even though you don't have children, I still love you, I care for you, you know, we're like... I still love you, like we're in this together type of thing. So we get a sort of snapshot from these few verses in this backstory of the, fi of the family dynamic um, entering into 1 Samuel chapter 1. Elkanah is married to both Hannah and Penina. Hannah is unable to bear children. Well, Penina is. Hannah is the first wife. Penina is second. And Penina is pretty, is pretty brutal. Is pretty brutal in reminding and bullying Hannah um, over this fact, over what she has and what Hannah does not. And Elkanah, despite his poor choice of words, clearly still loves and cares for Hannah, despite the fact 
that she is unable to bear children. And we also know that this dynamic, that little snapshot, has been going on for years at this point. And this is where we kind of enter into the story. I would argue that everything up until this point is sort of the backdrop um, for what happens. And I feel like the real story takes place in verse 9, where verse 9 is the point in the story where this this backstory, this tension, this bubbling has been going on for so many years to the point where it finally comes to like a, a pressure point. And Hannah, in her, in her depression, in her angst, in her anguish, like just can't take it anymore. And this is what she chooses to do. This takes place at their uh, family kind of annual worship. So once they had finished eating, and this is just after um, the time of worship and sacrifice, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor shall ever be used upon him his head. So in her desperation, Hannah turns to God, and she makes a deal, a covenant, a contract, whatever you want to call it, a little quid quo pro. And the vow is, if God is willing to give her a son, God, please, 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 if you would just give me a son, then I will turn and dedicate that child in service to the Lord consecrating for the rest of my life. Uh, the vows you talked about, the Nazarite vows, you may be familiar with it. Um, the most famous person to take this is, is Samson, right? Like there are certain vows that you take and it's to symbolize that this person is set aside, is set apart um, in dedication and service to the Lord. And for some of us in this room, maybe on a much smaller scale, um, you understand um, what, what, uh, what, what Hannah is going through. And maybe you yourself have prayed a similar type of prayer at some point in your life where You've, there's a moment in your life where you're so, so desperate, right? You just needed God to come through, and it didn't feel like it would be enough for you to just pray and ask God for stuff. You felt like you had a better chance of your prayer being answered if you threw in a little sum for God, right? God, it's not enough for me to ask to give me an A on this test that I did not study for. But here's what I'll do, God. If you can miraculously help me pass this test... Depending on how hard this is, like if this was like a, you know, a, like a quiz, you may not have said, but if this is like a final or a midterm, right? Depending on how desperate you needed this A to pass this class, you might have said something along the lines of, God, if, if you would just give me an A on this test, because I needed exactly a 97% in this class to get an A or to pass this class. Lord, if you want me to go to Africa, I'll go to Africa. If you want to be a missionary, like I'll do it. God, I will pray during Sabbath school. I will raise my hand when the pastor asks for any volunteer to pray. This week, if you can give me that A, I will raise my hand. And I will pray on behalf of the youth in this church. God, if you would just, when Uncle Ed asked me for praise, I'll say yes this time. Like, I promise I'll say yes, I'll do it. So like for a lot of us, I feel like we've, we've found ourselves in a situation maybe, and it may be comical or maybe a lot more truly, seriously desperate, where you found yourself in a place where you're crying out to God, and you needed God to come through in this moment. You needed God to come through. You needed a miracle. You needed divine intervention because there was just no other way you could get through this scenario. And because you felt like it would help your, it would boost your chances of your prayer being answered, you threw in a little something for God. God, I, 
I don't have much to give you, but I'll do this, right? If you would, if you would do this for me, God, I promise I'll do this for you. A little quid quo pro, a little contract. And I feel like this sort of bargain prayer is the prayer of someone that is truly, truly desperate, that feels like they have no other way out. And to be fair, Hannah's prayer, um, Hannah's found herself in that desperate, depressed um, kind of state. And that's why um, there's this kind of interesting situation where right after she prays this prayer of desperation, it says that she was praying, but she wasn't speaking out loud, but her mouth was moving. And so Eli, the priest who was observing this take place, actually mistakes her for being drunk and kind of chastises her. Like, woman, what are you doing? Like, really, you're drinking right now during the time of worship? And while it seems like kind of an off kind of thing to say, what it really does, it gives the reader a small snapshot at the kind of spiritual state of Israel during that time. So it goes Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel. And at the end of Judges, um, you find that the state of Israel during this time, towards the end of the Judges, is, is really, really spiritually desolate, where Israel currently in this state of their history is really not that different from just a pagan nation. Like morally, like they've just like, they're really, really not that different from their neighbors. And you find this really grotesque story towards the end of Judges where like these really crazy things happen. Um, but it shows through Eli's comments, that this sort of devotion to God was, at this time in Israel's history, a little bit uncommon, right? The fact that he would mistake it, assume that someone praying is someone that's just drunk, I think says a lot about what he expected and what the norm was of Israel during this time. So just the fact that she was just devoted to God um, during this says a lot about who she is and the character and the devotion that she had to God. But to go back to Hannah, after Eli notices her prayer, um, and realizes that she isn't drunk, instead of chastising her, he says this. Instead of yelling at her and, and giving her a hard time, Eli ends up blessing her, and he says, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Right? He doesn't know what he asked. He doesn't know what she asked for. He just observed this woman clearly in desperation, doing something, crying out to God, um, but it's silent. It's a little bit weird. It's awkward. When he realizes that she's praying to God, he says, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel, whatever it is that you ask for, may God grant that to you, may it be done. And upon hearing this, the Bible says that she went on her way, ate some food, and was no longer downcast. So again, this, this spell of kind of depression and downness was broken when she realizes the priest has blessed me, right? Something as good as going to happen, I feel like my prayer is going to be answered. And the next day, the family spends time in worship, and then they head back home. Shortly afterwards, Hannah becomes pregnant, and she names the boy Samuel, which means heard by God, by whom kind of like the, the title character of this book is. Who ends up, and Samuel ends up going on to become one of the most instrumental people in, in the Old Testament, transitioning Israel from the area of judges. He's like a priest, a prophet, and judge at the same time. He's the one that anoints Saul and David and starts this Davidic uh, royal line. A very instrumental person, right? So unto her is given a son by the name of Samuel, which for her was just a living breathing piece of evidence, proof that God heard her during her time, that God answered her prayers. And upon and after weaning Samuel, she follows up with the promises she made to God and dedicates Samuel to serving at the temple, where he serves under the steward of um, Eli the priest, learning from him and serving, and eventually would go on to take Eli's place as the priest. That's kind of how the story ends. There's a prayer that she sings just before that. But that's essentially the story of Hannah. We don't hear much from her afterwards. We do know that um, every year she would come with a robe to give to her son. She would see him once a year. But he, wasn't, he was no longer a part of the home. He wouldn't stay there. He would stay at the hotel. Uh, stay, sorry, not the hotel. 
at the temple, at the house of God. Um, similar, maybe. Um, but again, there wasn't really that kind of interaction anymore. She truly kind of let Samuel go. And this story has always been a little bit weird for me. It's been a strange story, and I remember when I read this this past week, this is the first time I'd read it in a really, really long time, and I knew who Samuel was, and I knew kind of this is roughly how his story went, but when I read the story again, and, and kind of the flow, and as I put myself in Hannah's shoes, and the desperation that she felt, and the tension between her and the rest of her family, and the anguish, and the fact that this had been going on for years and years, um, a, a fair amount of the story bothered me, actually. And I think part of what bothered me was that God answered Hannah's prayer. Like, to me, if I'm being honest, I was like, that's a little... Because, and again, there's a lot of kind of implying implication happening here. But the Bible says that she's been in this state for years, right? Enough where she first got married, couldn't have a kid, and then her husband got married again, still couldn't have a kid. That woman had multiple children, still no child for Hannah. And during all of this, she's being tormented and bullied and yelled at. And I imagine, given her dedication shown in 1 Samuel 1, that throughout those years, she probably prayed to God multiple hundreds, thousands of times, asking for a child. I imagine this probably wasn't her first time asking. And yet... The time that God decides to answer her prayer and give her a child is one time she prays and asks with this sort of contract in place where God, if you give me a son, I promise to give him back to you, essentially. Right? You give me this son, you bless me with a child, and I will give him back to you. And to me, it seemed almost a little cruel. Like, ah, like, God, this woman... Like, this is the one desire she has, like, the one hole in her life. Like, she's been praying in desperation. Like, if she just had this one thing, her life would be so much better. And then when you finally give it to her, you give it to her with the condition that I'm going to need that right back, actually. Right? At the time of reading, in those times, it was about two to three years, right? So she probably went three years. And that's it. She had two, three years with her baby boy, with her precious son. And then she gives him right back. To the Lord. And you may have noticed, actually, this story has a fair amount of parallels uh, with another story that takes place a few books earlier in the Bible. Of, um, I saw a lot of parallels with Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Hagar, and that whole escapade where there's this, a very similar situation. Abraham and Sarah are, are unable to have children. Um, and so Abraham takes a second kind of wife in Hagar. Hagar is able to have children. Hagar bothers Sarah about it a lot, about how she doesn't have a children. And there's a little bit of different kind of power dynamic going on there. Um, but that first wife is still the one that the husband loves more, and eventually Sarah is able to have a child of her own, and it's like the biggest blessing in the world. I mean, Abraham is much older, so it's kind of a different reason. Yet right after, shortly after that son enters into their life, God's like, I would like that child back now, right? But the core difference is that for Abraham, as he takes Isaac um, to sacrifice him, and again, I, There's no intention to believe that Abraham had any reason but to follow through with what God had asked him to do. As he goes to sacrifice his son just, just before, at the last possible minute, an angel of the Lord says, this has been a drill. Thank you so much for participating. Now I know how you feel. And he actually gets to go back home with his son. The core difference there is that Hannah does not go home with her son. Samuel stays there. And yes, Samuel goes on to do amazing things and 
Samuel is one of the key figures in the Old Testament that really transitions Israel during this time. But I don't know. If I'm Hannah, I'm like, I'd rather just have my son back at home with me. I'd rather raise my child that I've been waiting on for years and years. Yet, the condition that God gives this child in is one where she's going to need, he's going to need that child back. Now, the Bible doesn't spend much time talking about the time that Hannah had at home with Samuel, the two to three years where, um, before Samuel is weaned. Um, but at the end of chapter one, you find that Hannah's plan is to take Samuel and present him before the Lord before he's weaned. So again, the plan you find out is that in two to three years, she's going to uh, dedicate him. And knowing that her time was coming sooner than later, um, I wonder if at some point during those years, as she was holding her baby child in her arms, looking at his face and just like loving him, I wonder if the thought ever crossed her mind of like, what if I just kept him, right? Like what if, you know, like God is gracious, right? He's a forgiving God, like, oh, my God. Like what if, what if I just, you know, just apologize, say, sorry, God, I thought about it. And like, you know, what is he going to do? Like what's the worst thing that could do? And just keeping him and just saying sorry because, and I'm sure this occurred to her at some point as well during those two, maybe three years, that Hannah actually, there's no guarantee that she gives Samuel to God and that she can continue having children later. Like, it's very possible that this is it. That for her, like, this was the one child she was going to have, and there was no guarantee that she comes back home after, after giving Samuel to the Lord and that she can become pregnant again. I wonder if that situation ever crossed her mind where she gives Samuel, she comes back home, and then she can never get pregnant ever again. Like, would she be able to live with that choice, knowing that this was her one child that she would bring into the world? And aside from not knowing whether or not she could or would have more children, like, this is a special child for her. I mean, culturally, just a firstborn son of any family holds huge significance, gets the lion's share of the inheritance, and was, by most, most parts, socially speaking, like, the most important child in that family. But personally, there's a huge significance for her. This was not just a baby boy. This was the fulfillment of years of desperation and prayer. This child was living proof that God is faithful, that God hears her in her time of desperation and need, that God is a God that comes through, that God is a God that cares about this woman and her needs, despite the fact that, you know, the vast majority of Israel has, has essentially fallen apart from God. And for both Abraham and Hannah, I'm not a parent, so I can't really imagine what it would be like to give up a child. But for both of these parents, their child was really more than just a kid. This was a symbol of hope and joy for the family. Both of these families struggled so much hardship and heartache in the process of finally having this, their own baby boy. The child was living proof that God heard their cries, that God answered prayers, um, and that the prayers that God was real and that he was powerful and that he cared about them, the child was a reason. Hannah ate again and was joyful again and had a hope. And this was the child that Hannah was planning on giving back to the Lord without any promises of future children or, you know, whatever would happen down the road. And I can't help but, but wonder what went through her mind those years. Or maybe the night before. The night before she went back up to Shiloh um, with Samuel for the last time, I wonder if there was a moment where she was like, I don't know, if I just accidentally lost him for a few hours and I couldn't take him, like what, what, what situation could I do to hold on? And I wonder if there was a, a real possibility for her on her just reneging on the deal, like, God, ugh, 
I know we made that deal, but honestly, like, please forgive me. I would like to keep this child. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, because God clearly in this party puts himself in a vulnerable position where he says, I will hold up my end of the deal first, as he does throughout all of scripture and all of our relationships together, where God just says, I will fulfill my end of the bargain, and now it's up to you. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you made a deal with someone. We talked about it in youth Sabbath school this morning where if you've ever made a deal with someone, right? You do this for me, I do this for you. And when the time came and it was time for you to uphold your end of the bargain, for whatever reason, you were like, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. Um, when I was in maybe like a, with the equivalent of a juniors in, in Iraq, maybe fourth or fifth grade, um, at our church, we had something called juniors worship where after praise, all, everyone from like fourth grade to like third grade would stand up and go to a different room, and then we'd have our own kind of service from there. Um, and as part of that service, um, whoever was speaking would prepare a quiz. At the end of the message, um, as we were wrapping up, there was a quiz that was given, and depending on the, or, on, depending on the difficulty of the quiz, uh, depending on the difficulty of the question, again, these questions were based on the worship talk that was just given, um, I don't know how like, appropriate or biblical this is, and I'm not condoning any of this, but um, the leader would give odds, like two to one, three to one odds on how difficult a question was, and you would get points for answering a question correctly. And then you could wager those points for future questions. And so like, you'd be like, all right, it's three to one odds for this question, so it's like a medium, schmedium, difficult question. And I'm like, I, I bet five points on this question. If you got it right, you'd get back like 15 points. That was kind of what he would do. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, I'm just saying, that's what I experienced. And it was kind of a, uh, an incentive way to like for you to pay attention during the message. And then it was really exciting during this. Um, and the idea of this was that at the end of the year, you would have um, a certain amount of points. And then we would have kind of like an auction for just the juniors. And they would have a, you know, a bunch of toys and stuff that you could buy. And you can auction and bet or auction on or bid on these items that you wanted based on how many points you had collected throughout the year. Again, based on the number of questions you asked and then how many points you wager for each question. I was one of the older kids in the group at the time. And I was relatively, like, I was may, maybe like my last year in that program when they, when they kind of came up with this junior's worship. And, you know... I feel like I pay attention during worship for the most part. And I was like, okay. And I found out after the first week, I was like, these questions are actually pretty easy. So what I started doing um, was I was like, every time a question came up, so they would give you the odds for the question first, and you can like, you know, put down how many points, and then they would show the question. And then you, depending on whether or not you got it right, you got your points. I would just, every single time I could, I would just wager every single one of the points that I had. Because I was like, I paid attention during the sermon. It's, it's, it's going to be easy. It's going to be like, who is this story about? And so even if it was really, really difficult, I would just wager all, every single one of my points every single time. And I found out that nobody else was doing this. I think when people found out, they're like, dude, you're crazy, bro. You're going to lose all your points. I'm like, I don't know, man. I, feel like I, I really feel like I'm not. Nobody else was doing this. And after a few weeks, I had so many points. And then I realized, no. I don't have enough points. And so what I did is I turned to the kid next to me. I still remember his name was TJ. I was like, TJ, let's combine our points, right? And then every time, I'm just going to go all in every time. And then at the end of the year, we'll split it, right? And I'm like, listen, man, nobody else is doing this. Like, we're going to be so rich, right? We're going to get all the Nerf guns. And he was like, yeah. And so, like, I got a partner, right? And so he bought in. And then so I took all of his points. And every week, every question, I would bet every single one of my points. And at the end of the year... 
Um, like most people had about like 1,000, maybe like 2,000, like maybe 5,000 points because towards the end of the year, people started catching on. I had like 2 million points at the end of the year, right? And, you know, depending on how you look at it, it's either people were like, oh, my gosh, you're so smart, or like, oh, you have a gambling problem. Like, I don't know what's wrong. And like, you know, they talked to my mom afterwards, like, oh, Jonathan has all these points. And they kind of said it in a nice way, like, oh, my gosh. But I think they're also like, you're so going to have a gambling problem, so like keep a tab on that in the future. But um, like I had this ridiculous amount of points. But every single question that was asked, I got it right because I paid attention. And TJ actually didn't do much. And so the Saturday of the auction, so Saturday evening was going to be when we had like a junior thing. We'd have a party, kind of end of the year party. We have dinner, and then um, they'd have like all the prizes out. As we were hanging out at the park, I was like, dang, it's a lot of points. And then I was like, once I was in that position, it came down to, all right, well, half of those points are not mine. Right? Because at the beginning of the quarter of the semester, whenever we first started, we made a deal. Right? And we both only had like 100 points. Right? Back in those days, right, I was like, of course, we'll split the pot at the end. Even though you don't answer any of the questions, I'll answer all of them. I'll take all the risks for everything. And at the end, I was like, hey, man, like 500,000 points. That's a lot of points. Like, you know, everyone else only has like 5,000, man. And so I remember, like, I was in this moment. I was like, okay. That's a lot, man. And I remember talking to him about it. I, I knew it was wrong, right? I knew it was shady. Like, I knew it was not a good thing to do. But I was, like, just enamored by the greed of, like, all these points. I was like, hey, man, listen, I'll give you, like, 200,000 max, right? I was like, dude, it doesn't make sense. Like, I took all the risk. Like, it all, come on, man. Like, what, what, what are we doing here? Um, and it was a really awkward conversation, actually. But he was actually, to make it worse, he was, like, younger than me, too. And he's like, oh, okay, young. Like, we'll do whatever. You want. And it was actually really bad. It was, it was terrible, and I'm not proud of it. Also because um, there was nothing actually on the auction that I even really wanted. I was like the oldest kid there, and I was like, most people like candy and stuff, and I don't really eat candy. And so like, there was nothing I ever wanted, but just like, when it came down to it, I was like, like when the, ch- when the cards were in my hands, right, and it was up to me to decide, it was totally up to me, this deal that I made way back when, it was so easy for me to be like, you know what, like, on second thought, no. No, 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 this is ridiculous. Like, I don't agree with these terms at all. You know what? Sorry, not sorry. It is what it is. And I imagine for Hannah, there was a point in tension where, like, yes, you made that promise two, three years ago, but you were desperate, right? You were desperate and desperate. People say a lot of crazy things. Come on, like, maybe God, maybe God would understand. You know, I bet you God would understand if you just, come on. I mean, it's not like a thing, it's a human, it's your son, it's your son. God gave him to you, how bad would it be if you just held on to it? And while we can only speculate on what Hannah was thinking, we don't have much commentary. I mean, even in Pedro's and Prophets, there's not much going on in like, what Hannah was thinking during these two, three years with her son. What we do know for sure is this. The story ends with Hannah following through on her promise that after the baby had been weaned, she goes up to Shiloh to the place of worship. She makes sacrifices. She worships to the Lord. She has this sort of prophetic prayer. Um, and then she dedicates her child in service to the temple. And then she leaves without her child. And I think the reason Hannah ultimately makes that decision comes down to her understanding of what her son actually was. Her son was a huge blessing. Her son was, yes, a symbol of hope, a reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness. But Hannah understood that her son was not a replacement for God. That as amazing and as big of a blessing as Samuel was, Hannah did not allow Samuel to become God, or at the very least to become an idol that became an obstacle in her life from God. 
I think for a lot of us in this room, that aspect can become a much more relatable concept the more we think about it, where I think for a lot of us in this room, there, there are things that in our life that initially maybe began as a blessing from God, right? God gave us this good thing. I have this good thing in my life that I love, and maybe there was something in your life that a few years ago you prayed for, and you desperately, there was a moment in your life where you just, you wanted nothing more than this one thing, and you prayed to God out of desperation, and God gave you um, this blessing in your life. And as time went on, as you got this blessing from God, the importance of this blessing grew, and as our desire for more of these blessings increased, the blessing began to slowly eclipse the blesser. Maybe for some of us really early on, when we were much younger, we, we, we felt very comfortable being like, yeah, money is a blessing from God. This is not my money. This is God's money. I'm merely a steward of this. Yet as we grow older, yet as we gain more of it, yes, as we, as we start to understand and experience the comfort and the sense of security that money gave us, the, the blessing that God gave us in money, while in and of itself is not inherently evil or bad, it slowly began to eclipse the blesser, where there become a, ta- a time in our life when maybe when you had a choice between doing what is in the best interest of my finances or of my money or following God and what God wants me to do, it became a much more difficult decision than maybe when you were younger. Maybe for some of us, it's for our students. It's grades, right? Getting that, that 4.0, getting straight A's, having, maintaining a sense of academic excellence is the most important thing to us. And at one point, it was like, yeah, God is helping me get these grades. God helped me get into that college. God helped me get this degree. Yet the more we went on, the idea of holding on to those grades became much more important than following God himself. Like, yeah, if it means cheating a little bit, cutting a few corners to maintain the sense of excellence and getting these grades, I'm willing to do it even if it puts me at odds with God. Or maybe for some of us, it's literally like Hannah, our children, right? The children in our lives, we love them so much. They're such a blessing from God. And maybe at some point in raising your child, and I say this respectfully, not having any children myself, but maybe the temptation started to creep in. Like, I just want to give my child the best opportunities, everything that they could ever want. And at one point, it became to come at odds with, do I follow and obey God or do I give my child what he or she wants? Do I give this opportunity or this privilege to this child, even if it may be at odds with what God may want or if it may be at odds with what God wants me to do? And the list goes on and on, and perhaps there's something you're currently struggling with, that something that was once an evidence, a piece of evidence of the goodness and faithfulness of God in your life has now become God in and of itself. Where I imagine for Hannah, this was very much the same situation, where the son that she was given from God was evidence of God's faithfulness and goodness and the fact that God cared for her. But the temptation was... Do I obey God in giving this son back and, uh, and trust that God will take care of me regardless? Or do I take matters into my own hands and see the value of my son and hold on to him and say, you know what, God, I love you, I care for you, but to be honest, me holding on to this son is much more important than following you. Sorry, not sorry, God. And I imagine that maybe for some of you, you found yourself in a similar situation where you came to a crossroad in your lives and it was... Do what God wants me to do. Follow God. Make that sacrifice. Follow him to that place. Follow him to that job. Follow him to that decision that I have to make versus what I want, the fulfillment of my desires, the, what I think I should be doing. And at times, that can be a much more difficult decision to make if we allow the things in our life that God has given us to eclipse the person that has given them to us. 
Was she going to allow her new son to simply be a blessing from God, to be a reminder and a symbol of hope, or would she allow her new son to be a replacement for God, to be an obstacle that prevented her from obeying and following God's will for her life? And ultimately, Hannah chooses to, to allow Samuel to simply be a blessing and a reminder of her life that God will take care of her, and she dedicates Samuel the temple. And I truly believe that the reason Hannah was able to do this was because her faith allowed her to understand this. Even if she didn't have a child after Samuel, even if this was it, this was the only child she would ever have, she may never have children again, her faith and her hope was in God, knowing that even if this is my only child, God, you're still going to take care of me. Why? Because Samuel is a reminder in my life that you care and that you listen and that you understand what I'm going through. You understand the pain that I was in. And for me to hold on to that would be so ironic in the truest sense of the word. For me to hold on to the gift that you've given me and direct defiance to you would mean that I didn't really understand what this gift was to begin with. And by her giving that gift back to God was an act of faith in her truly understanding who God was that because she had been given Samuel, she could understand that God would take care of me. That because the same, the same God that answered her prayer for a son would be the same God that stood by her side through anything else that life had to throw at her. And instead of allowing the fulfillment of her prayer to be a hindrance for her faith, she allowed the fulfillment of her prayer to strengthen her faith and hope in God. Because Hannah's hope was not in her son, but in the one who gave her that son, and in the someone who would later know exactly how Hannah felt when that same someone would give his very own son for Hannah and her sons and her descendants and for you and for me, that we may be able to become children of God. And that same person asks you today to put your trust in the one who provides the blessings because the blessings in and of themselves isn't what's good but it's the one who provides them for you that is worthy of your faith and hope and trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I praise you for this reminder that you've given us and the fact that you have someone like Hannah, as faithful as she is in the Bible, to remind us of who you are, Father, and how we can best follow and experience and understand what it means to trust and to have hope in you. Father, we know that as followers of you, our hope is not built on circumstance. Our hope is not built on probability or chance or optimism. Our hope is built on a person, and it's built on Jesus Christ, Father. Help us to, to remind ourselves of that as we go throughout this week, Father, that whatever life may throw at, us, throw at us, whenever we may be tempted to take matters into our own hands, whenever we may be tempted to follow our own understanding, our own wisdom, to, to renege on a deal, to renege on following you, to take matters into our own hands, to serve a different God or a different desire, Father. Remind us gently in love, as you often do, Lord, that you are the center of our hope and of our faith, Father, that you are a God that in the same way you listened and answered Hannah in her moments of desperation and sat by her side, Father, that you sit with us, Lord, that you care for us, Father, that you are a God of grace and compassion, and mercy, and that when we follow you, and we follow your intentions and your will, we truly live the life that you want us to live, Father. Thank you for this message and this, and this reminder you've given us on the Sabbath. May we have the strength and courage to follow you in our, in our lives.
place in your son Jesus' name. Amen.